Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Walking down the street at 6.30 a.m. on any given weekday in midtown Manhattan or the city in London, one can see armies of bankers, salespeople, traders, computer scientists, quants, and other financial services professionals streaming into large office towers. Behind every suit, every Patagonia fleece jacket, is a brilliant mind, an ambition to pierce through a grueling selection process that starts very early in life. The test, the exam, the schools, the analyst training programs. With that mind often come hidden talents and creativity, a byproduct of the hyperactive mind. My guest today, Tim Grant, embodies these multiple facets. Cambridge-educated, PhD candidate, UBS managing director at age 31, serial entrepreneur, and chief executive. But you wouldn't fully know Tim unless you've seen him pull out his Gibson and sing Jimi Hendrix with raw passion. You would have missed out. This is your chance not to. Tim's crypto journey began on the 19th of March, 2015, while an executive at the multi-billion dollar hedge fund UBS O'Connor, when in the course of one day, he met Chris Larson from Ripple in the morning, Brian Armstrong and Fred Ursam from Coinbase in the afternoon. And in his own words, the penny dropped for him. From that point on, as someone intimately acquainted with the arcane plumbing and workflows of traditional finance, he could not fathom staying on the sidelines. And so he made the leap to run the R3 Lab and Research Center, which was focused on bringing global financial institutions, established and startup technology companies, regulators, and central banks together to research, develop, and produce new distributed ledger technologies and methodologies. And in the past eight years, Tim has led several high-profile efforts in the digital asset space, including his most recent role at Galaxy as head of EMEA. There is no better person to understand or evangelize on many levels the challenges of building an architecture and a technology infrastructure that will ultimately scale to the demands of the next generation of assets and market participants, but also what the architecture of the financial and monetary system ought to look like on a going forward basis. Tim has a master's from the Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge and a master's in financial engineering from Burbeck College at the University of London. I hope you enjoy our conversation. In fact, we had such a good chat, we made two episodes. I grew up in strangely West Central Scotland, just outside Glasgow, for the first 18 years of my life to a French mother and an English father. So I've always been a bit of a mongrel, multiple nationalities and languages. But ultimately, I'm a Scotsman, a card-carrying, born and bred Scotsman, kilt-wearing Scotsman. And that's where I began. And you know, I grew up in a very working-class neighborhood in late 70s and 80s in Scotland, which wasn't a great economic time for Scotland, where that's where I sort of cut my teeth on how to engage with people. And you know, not to put too fine a point on it, there was a lot that was People think about sectarian violence as being something that happened in Northern Ireland, but there was a fair share of perhaps slightly more muted. Perhaps it wasn't bombs going off, but it was certainly the threat of sectarian violence was real. Are you Protestant or Catholic? Was a question you ought to be prepared for as you walked around my neighborhoods and you want to be 
in my world, it was about figuring out what to say to ensure that I was safe. I was neither non-denominational. I think that really tells you a lot about kind of where I began, right? And how I've evolved. It's always been about reading people, trying to understand people's intentions and motivations. And maybe that's why ultimately I've become a salesperson. I've become somewhat adept at that over the years. So that was my humble beginning. From there, I, through my father, he was a physicist, among other things, and he was a philosopher. My parents were both school teachers. So I, I developed, my mother's a French teacher. So I developed an interest in, in physics and the sciences in general. That's what got me through high school into Cambridge. I was delighted to sort of break free from Airdrie in Scotland, which most people listening to this will not have heard of. It's a small town, maybe 60,000 people outside of Glasgow, and not many people break out of there to the heady heights of Cambridge, but I was able to do it. And very thank, and it wasn't easy, I have to say, but I got there. So that then introduces you to another big world. But, you know, in the spirit of, I think the modern age, we're supposed to be really open about who we are and where we've come from. Like, I would say I didn't have a particularly easy childhood. My parents were wonderful and gave me a great start. So I can't complain. But my father was an alcoholic. He died a long time ago. And that's a tough thing to grow up with. And being a bit of an alien, I did have a thick Scottish accent, which I can put on any tame, by the way, when I was a kid. But I spoke like this. I spoke French. That's not, and I was kind of smart at school. It's not a good combination for a bunch of kids in working class Scotland. So it was a target for bullying. And my dad's alcoholism and his now, in retrospect, mental health issues were, were really not addressed properly. So it was a tough go of it. But that has made me. I think now I'm 47, I can say with some certainty that I've kind of been on the journey. It's a never ending journey, of course, but it's colored how I've approached the world. And I don't think it's crazy to say that that experience seeps into what I'm trying to do today. And hopefully we'll kind of go through the journey to get there. But that, I don't think that's a crazy statement. That's a wonderful introduction. And thank you for that. And thank you for being candid. So many things to unpack. I actually have some ties to Scotland. I spent three to four years growing up in Aberdeen, and I know firsthand, and this was in the 80s, and I know firsthand how rough and tumble Glasgow can be. And interesting to hear you talk about how you developed those early skills to really as a survival mechanism, right? With your environment, with your own DNA, literally as a person, not genetically, but really forming as a person and developing those survival skills. The one question I had with regards to this is, how did you parlay this situation into performing academically? Was it wanting to get out at all costs? Was it something else? Was it something that was ingrained in you by your parents? Or was it situational and you developed this as sort of like your own differentiating factor? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I think it's more the latter. My parents were never pushy. They're both smart people and very well educated. And to this day, I'm always astounded by my wonderful mother and, and her intellect. So I, was, I had that backing, but they were never pressuresome. They never, ever pressured me at all. And therefore, it came from within for some reason. It's interesting because I'm now a father of two. My boys, Luke and Bo, are 11 and nine. And so we're getting to the questions of academic 
capability. So it's funny, I've been thinking a lot about this topic recently. And I think it's fair to say that it all came from within. And perhaps there was an element of retreating to that because it could be quite rough and tumble, as you say, out there in the real world. And I didn't know my place in it. Although I will say the idea of escaping, I don't remember this sort of overarching feeling of getting out of there. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't because I didn't know where to go to. I didn't know what there was to go to. I think I did want to achieve status through academic excellence. And that perhaps provided some level of validation for me, which I didn't get in many other places until quite late. I wasn't good at sports, although I latterly did become, turns out I had an aptitude for it, but it wasn't obvious when I was younger that perhaps the resources weren't there in the state system that I grew up in. In the I actually went to the last two years of, which I should say for my former friends and teachers and colleagues, I went to the high school of Glasgow, which is an incredible school in, in Glasgow for the last two years of my schooling, which really, I frankly, if I hadn't done that, probably wouldn't have made it to Cambridge. And that's where I kind of found myself. That was where I found people who were intellectually engaging, who were values driven in a different way. And that began a journey uh, with the right kind of people around me. I think that's the gist of it. I think it was very, there was some burning need to validate myself by demonstrating that I was academically excellent. Now, I think I can extrapolate that now to the corporate world. Because as soon as I've gone to Cambridge and I was, I worked hard, it wasn't easy, but I got a first class degree from Cambridge, came second in my year. Now, I'm not saying that to brag, I'm way beyond that. I'm so, it's interesting to note because I have, and I've never really talked about this publicly, but now seems a good time. I've had crippling imposter syndrome at various points in my career, which some people, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, might be like, well, that doesn't make sense. You were first in Cambridge, very rapid to MD in the corporate world. Looks like I've done a bunch of stuff since then. Feels like I've done all right. Yeah, but that's not how imposter syndrome works. There's an interesting dialogue, I think, starting to come out in the popular podcast press like this about, is imposter syndrome just the human condition, really? Aren't we all that? I don't know, but I know I had it. And I still have it from time to time. So that feeling of not belonging, that feeling of needing to validate myself is probably, it definitively goes all the way back to the mean streets of West Central Scotland and spat me out with a desire to succeed and well, the desire to be validated. And that's what got me into Cambridge and beyond. I think that's the story. That can be a very, very powerful driver and motivator. And I think it shows throughout your progression and the roles that you've had. And we'll talk about this now. My last question with respect to these early days is, I know you're a musician. I know you play the guitar quite well, actually. When did that start developing? Yeah, that's such a huge part of my life. Anyone who does Zoom calls with me, both at my work office and especially my home office, will know this because there's always a guitar in the background. And at home, there are like 20 guitars in the background. I made a decision in the last couple of years just to wear my my heart on my sleeve there in this new world of showing who you are. And maybe it's as much my <laughs> my evolution as a person to be comfortable with that. But yeah, I'm a guitarist. It's what defines me. I love to write and sing and play. And I've been doing that since I was about 11. And I've got my parents to thank for that. Countless hours of driving around Europe. My parents were school teachers, so we had the whole summer off every summer. 
And so literally, we, they picked me up from school the last day of school. And we'd head to the UK, down to England, and then we'd go over to France and sometimes Italy, Spain, Yugoslavia, when it was that. And so we listened to hours and hours of cassette tapes. And it was Jimi Hendrix, it was Dire Straits, it was Bruce Springsteen, it was Eric Clapton. It was that kind of genre. And that's guitar music. And it's actually Fender, Stratocaster and Telecaster music. I've become a Gibson man for those that care. But I started about 11 and I remember I had a couple of lessons at school. And I think I have to thank the teacher, Dougie. And he had said, what do you really want to play? I was learning green sleeves, you know, the basic starting point for a little acoustic guitar. And I said, I want to play Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. And he taught me, he just basically said, which one do you want to do? And I said, Layla, which is one of the greatest sort of guitar tunes of all time. What a bold place to want to start. But that's where we started. And he taught me Layla and I figured it out. And he taught me the pentatonic scale and really set me free. I never had lessons after that. I only had a few. And I'm a blues, rock, funk guitarist. I'll play for hours on end. I can solo with the best of them. I can sing very mediocre, but I can hold a party. And it really is to this day, like to this day, fast forward to today, Whenever I'm at home and I'm able to put my children to bed and I'll do it tonight, I will turn the lights off, pick up my favorite, cheapest guitar is one of my favorites. It's a blue nylon string guitar I bought in Sydney, Australia many years ago. And I'll just play guitar for them every single night. That started in the pandemic. We're two years in, three years in maybe. And so I do play most days. But I remember saying at my 30th birthday, nearly 20 years ago, which was in London, I said to it was a, big, a bit of a coming out for me in front of a lot of people who didn't know I did this. And I remember saying this is on video somewhere. I was about to play Red House by Jimi Hendrix, which is a tough one to pull off, but I did it. And I said, for those of you who are in any doubt, I can't I'll paraphrase myself, but you really want to know what I want to do in life. It's not investment banking, it's this. <laughs> I just sort of launched into this. It tells you something about my grandstanding, but that, it's such a huge part of my life and will always be. And that's why for anyone who zooms me from here on in, you'll see a guitar in the background. Well, thank you for that. And I do believe it's a huge part of who you are, knowing you and having had these conversations before. So now, fast forward, you're thrust into the world of Wall Street, investment banks, and at the intersection and at the cutting edge of technology within those institutions, right? What is not to say this is Silicon Valley technology. It's technology within the banks. So talk to us a little bit about your progression, because obviously now you're in the heart of everything, technology and finance and macroeconomics together, all blended together, world digital assets. But at the time, what is that formation? So it's funny how things pan out. Classic Springsteen line, one day we'll look back on this and it will all seem funny as I'm a huge Springsteen fan, 61 shows and counting. And I do look back on it and it all seems funny now. I'm old enough, 23 years into my career, to recognize that I didn't know the building blocks that were going to contribute to what I do today. We're all going to be so important. We're all going to come together in the way they did. But I feel genuinely, extremely blessed at this point. The path took the path that it took. And the beginning of that is actually just before I went to UBS, I started a PhD, got offered a PhD at MIT, got offered a PhD in Cambridge. I ended up going 
to Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, EPFL. And I started a PhD. A year into it, I published a paper. And again, this is all about that validation thing. I was like, all right, I'll publish an academic paper and I'll be validated. And what I realized is that I published that academic paper, which is actually is a link on it on my LinkedIn, which now some people might be a bit clear why it's there. It's a bit of an important moment for lots of reasons. Firstly, I did publish a paper and I'm still very proud of it one year into my PhD. But I also was terribly underwhelmed by how that felt. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've published a paper. There might be five people who read this, maybe. And you realize that the path for an academic, you need to be a certain, obviously, intellect and capability. And I'm not entirely sure I had that. But you certainly need to be passionate. And you want it. There's a certain lifestyle you're going to lead. And I realized I wasn't going to be that guy. So one year into a PhD, I quit. Everybody's around me is like, what are you doing? And I go and do a master's in financial engineering in London, Birkbeck College. And the reason it was Birkbeck, which I had a wonderful experience and it set me up well, is because there really wasn't much else in 1999 in terms of every other course you had to have experience and I didn't have any. Now that's changed. There's loads of masters in finance and engineering, all that stuff. So, but I was in the early stages of that. And that gave me, if I was to distill it, how do you transition from studying the heat equation to studying black shoals. Because really, at the end of the day, stochastic mass is the same underpinning for a lot of what's going on in, in physics and material science, which was my speciality, the fraction mechanics of metal matrix composites for those that care. That how do you get into suddenly valuing options? Well, that's the link. It's the proximity of the heat equation and black shoals. And so that now I'm transitioning into the finance world through the lens of financial engineering, of numerical analysis, of statistical analysis, of stochastic maths and things like that. And that was kind of the leg up that got me into UBS on the graduate training program. So I've come in as a quant of effectively, and once a quant, always a quant, I think, although my days of being able to derive black shoals from first principles are long gone. But I did that once. And that brings me into a world that, well, I think being a quant in the modern financial world, or at least having that training is incredibly valuable and will only become more valuable as one pillar. So, but I'm also, you know, I've been programming as part of that training that I was doing. So I'm now facile enough with technology in 1999, which is kind of on the cusp of web two. Three months, four months after I started 99, the bottom falls out of the market. It's the web two crash. So I'm too late to really participate in Web2 at the very early stages, but I'm early enough with a knowledge of technology and of that sort of more quantitative skill set to apply it. And I started on the bond sales desk at UBS and found myself a few months in being told to go and work for this wonderful woman called Julie Chakraverti, who became a mentor and friend to this day. And afforded me the value, and this is a topic we might want to cover, like of being actually managed by a woman for the first eight years of my career, which is probably one of the greatest gifts I also had to be able to operate effectively in the modern world, in a world of more equality. And was told to work in a group called Credit Delta, which was setting up a web-based delivery platform for portfolio analytics for credit. And I remember being, frankly, at the time, like, oh no, but I want to be, I just read Lies Poker. I want to be a big swinging guy on the desk. I want to be that the big swinging dick. I want to be on the bond trading desk, throwing around hundred millions of bonds. And in retrospect, 
boy, was it lucky that I didn't end up going down that road because I honestly, in disrespect to people who are still doing that job, it's like, that's a 20th century construct. Like we're moving on. And so I started my journey way back at the beginning of the century in technology and deploying a web-based technology to big institutional clients where our first clients were BlackRock, BGI, they were Threadneedle, DWS, like the biggest asset manager in the world. It was a platinum product delivered to platinum clients. So I cut my teeth in the credit world. And then you've got the whole rise of credit from 2000 through to 2008. So I got to see a new asset class develop and that credit derivatives, CDOs, CDO squared and every flavor of it that you saw back in the day, got to be an expert in that got to be an expert in delivering analytical technology via the web to institutional clients and got to see it all go horrifically pear-shaped all in the space of eight years. And in retrospect, I'm not sure how much better a setup I had to start the journey that's led me here. And you know, back to validation, I was desperate to get to MD as fast as possible. I was desperate to show the world that, oh, no, I'm validated. And I did. Fortunately, I got there in seven years, relatively rare feat. You know, I was 31 when I got there. I'm definitely not the fastest, but it's definitely on the sharper end, you know, seven years since the day you walk in as a grad. So I got that validation. But again, in retrospect now, that's not what I really what I was looking for at all. But I had to go through that rite of passage. So that's how I ended up at UBS and what I did at UBS to kick it all off, Maxime. So there is a breakthrough there right after your first did at UBS, where you joined something a lot more entrepreneurial, still in the realm of technology, still in the realm of analytics. What's the transition there? Because it's highly uncommon for people who've spent quite a few years at a bank and in an institution that's quite large in nature and operates in a very different way to going down the startup route. And this is the beginning of also like your entrepreneurial journey, right? On some level. So talk to us about what led to that and what you got out of it, because there are a lot of applicable skills on the technical side, but I'm assuming the executive level aspects of your day-to-day -day job, being part of a, a venture were very, very different than being part of this big house that was UBS. For the most part, yes, but with one exception, and this is another very fortunate outcome for me. We were part of an entrepreneurial team within UBS. We were on the trading floor in London, and then I moved to New York and lived there for 19 years, just came back two years ago. And I was on the biggest trading floor in the world in Stanford, Connecticut, when it was that. So it was actually wonderful to have experienced that and you know, had a big group of people on the biggest trading floor in the world. But we were an entrepreneurial team. We had to figure it out. We had to blast through policies and ways of doing things that really wasn't done on the street. People weren't doing it the way we did it then. And so there was some entrepreneurial training that I didn't realize I was getting, which is very, very fortunate. But for the most part, your point is spot on. You can't learn to be an entrepreneur on a trading floor. I think people often, and it's happening live today, they'll come out of banking. I want to go and seek my fortune as an entrepreneur. It's not easy. And you got to learn the hard way. It's very rare that you just walk out and get it right first time. So it's important to note why I left UBS the first time, because I exited UBS twice. The first time I left at the end of 2008, I had been drafted by the board of directors, specifically by the chief risk officer, 
to come out of the investment bank and help figure out what to do with the subprime mess. So now in late 2007, 2008, I have a front row seat to the subprime mess with one of the banks that was one of the biggest problems, 60 billion loss. So alongside Merrill and, and Lehman and, and a few others, like this was it. This was the coal face of where you were losing billions of dollars in a week sometimes. And that was great training to be involved in a wartime situation. But I'll say this now, there's a you know, statute of limitations morally is up because nobody at UBS is very much the same people. I was shocked to, be, to have my first engagement with the leaders of UBS, the board of directors and the group executive board, and find that I just was really unimpressed. I was shocked by the decisions they were making, why they were making them, the inconsistencies, the lack of good communication, the lack of cultural alignment, all terms I can use now, but I, all I can say then was I was frustrated. I've learned the terms now to describe what was wrong with the place. And I think in general sense, in, we're all learning more of that language. But back then, I was just really frustrated and I didn't see how I was going to stay there. So I literally walked out on the 19th of December, 2008, crazily two months before a bonus. In retrospect, what was I thinking? I could just wait two months. I just had had enough. I thought the banking was, this was all wrong. The incentive structures were all wrong. And I can now vocalize that I think it was the wrong edge of capitalism. It's capitalism done wrong. And I had to get out. And then I took a couple of years out unexpectedly. The first year and a half was deliberate. And then it took me a while to get back into the workforce. I went traveling around the world, took my guitar, wrote a hundred songs, all that sort of stuff. But I got married crucially to my wonderful wife. And that was a great way to start our relationship. Now I come back I get hired by Citigroup and I famously last exactly 80 days on the job because I walk into the trading floor at Citigroup and all I see is the same bollocks I was dealing with at UBS two years previously. And so I'm like, guys, I'm out. And I got hired by a startup called Benchmark Solutions. And there my training really began about what it means to raise money, build technology, deploy it to financial institutions product market fit, boardroom dynamics, shareholder dynamics, cap table dynamics, it all began there. And I'm ever, I'll be ever thankful for that. It wasn't a great outcome with that startup benchmark. We kind of failed, but we were bought by Bloomberg and I ended up there for a bit, which is a whole other story. But that's where my transition really happened there in benchmark solutions. Um, it was a little false in the sense that it was an incredibly well-funded startup, too well-funded, actually. I think we blew 60 million in total. It was in today's money, that was a more, and that just wasn't a great way to execute. But hey, those are the t-shirts that any entrepreneur will tell you, you got to amass before you can be effective. So that was my first big lesson, was the failure of benchmark. But I also learned a lot about people and started to hone something that I'm very passionate about today, which is values and culture. I started to really pay attention to that. And I'm lucky to have had that still relatively young. I still had lots of time to go and get more experiences. But anyone who's looking to transition from like TradFi into an entrepreneurial situation is going to have to go through that rite of passage. There's no other way. And you probably need to fail before you succeed. Unfortunately, that's the hard yards, you know? I mean. First of all, I think you're humble because Benchmark 
ended up being and still is the kernel for a very substantial part of Bloomberg's corporate bond and fixed income pricing modules. And it was pioneering in the way it applied Bayesian techniques to infer prices from prints and data. And, and you and I are very familiar with that coming from the credit and corporate bond world. And so, and way ahead of its time, right? And so on some level, calling it a failure, I think is a little extreme, but it probably was not meant as many businesses aren't to be billion dollar company. And that's fine. But the reality is it, it found its fit and it found its buyer and it found a home. The reason I'm saying this is, and this is something that I'm pretty adamant about, is we've lived in this world, especially in the last decade. You're literally, I was talking to a friend who's an entrepreneur about you know, some of his friends really not being interested in sort of that outcome in between. They either want to stay home or they want to hit a unicorn. And the reality is, in a world where money is awash and there's more venture capital chasing innovation, the odds of turning any venture into a unicorn are very slim, and they're getting slimmer by the day. That being said, there are a lot of businesses out there that solve very specific needs that are not necessarily meant to be billion-dollar companies, but nevertheless are great businesses to build. And just getting there, by the way, is no small feat. So kudos to you for doing this. Now, what I'd like to understand is, and I know you go back to UBS O'Connor, which also has a history of innovation, uh, probably not at the same sort of steepness of the curve. But then you're thrust into pretty early on in the world of digital assets, in the world, the emerging world of blockchain. And we're talking at a time when, I'll be honest, even I was eyeing it, looking at it, but just not really ready to embrace or validate. You went all in, right? Started at R3 and so I want to understand what prompted you, what was the vision there that led you to think, okay, this is something that I want to dedicate myself to? Yeah, the old Genesis moment that we all have. Yes. Well, firstly, it's actually really, I appreciate your comments on Benchmark Solutions and just on the off chance that anyone who was there with me is listening. Yeah, we were doing some cracking stuff. Dr. Peter Cotton is an incredible mind who was driving a lot of what we were doing. And yeah, we were building issuer-specific credit curves on a 10-second increment using complex event processing. That was really early and very ahead of its time and was building on a lot of the stuff we did at UBS Delta, actually, So, or Credit Delta. So there's a theme here. It was always cutting-edge stuff. I'm very used to being the guy who's trying to convince people about the new stuff. Like that, Apparently, that's a theme that just keeps coming up in my life. So just lean into it, I suppose. But I did end up at O'Connor. It was a great honor to be there, honestly. O'Connor in the 80s, 90s was a formidable house and still, I think, has that strong DNA, not maybe quite the same as it was in the 80s and 90s, but still there. So it was an honor to be able to work there and to work for Dawn Fitzpatrick, who's now running George Soros's money. She's a wonderful force of nature. So I learned a lot about the buy side to add that to my sell side experience. But I have Dawn to thank and I'm not sure Dawn entirely knows this actually, because at one day I was really driving more on the quant side of the business and I came to Dawn and I talked about the problems in the tech stack. And this is all very relevant to today, right? Like UBS, O'Connor, yes, it's an independent hedge fund, but it's working on UBS's substrate of technology. Therefore, it's bu burdened by the same constraints 
of crappy old technology with COBOL somewhere deep in the midst of it. And it, I went to Dawn and I can't remember what for the life of me what I said, but I basically explained that there were real constraints to being able to grow. And she basically made me the de facto CTO, the head of technologies, right? Go solve it, which is a great thing to learn. Like if you're going to go and complain, be ready to go and solve it. So I was forced to go and, and that was a great transition, run the team of developers, engineers and BAs at O'Connor, be responsible for delivering a 24-5, billion hedge fund global trading stack on multiple asset classes around the world. Like That's a pretty big deal, learning about accounting systems and trading systems and data and, and really leaning into the analytic that I, was more of my thing. And so that was a real honor to do that for O'Connor. I will personally just always have a great bit of satisfaction that I got to that seat given the extraordinary history, the richness of O'Connor's history in the option space, because they really were pioneers. But as a result of that, I got invited to participate in the broader technology conversations of senior management at UBS, the CTO of UBS at the time, Oliver Boosman, Stefan Mura was the, the CTO or CIO in the CTO. And they all went to a shindig in Silicon Valley in March of 2015. So eight years ago, more than eight years ago now, with zero knowledge of Bitcoin or blockchain, I can't really tell you if I would have recognized it if you'd mentioned anything to me. I'm fairly sure not. In the midst of a bunch of meetings with robo-advisors, if we all remember that craze and all the other classic startups, including, you know, and Apple, strangely, we met with Coinbase and Ripple on the 19th of March, 2015. I'll always remember the day I've thought about it a lot. Like that was the day that everything changed. That was the day that Chris Larson at Ripple helped me understand in the morning what blockchain is and what it can do. And the penny dropped immediately for me on that because I immediately extended that to the infrastructure that this financial institution I was working with was creaking under and every other one. It's like, this is the solution to reconciliation. Why am I working as a hedge fund? And O'Connor was one of the first to go really multi-prime. We had 11 primes, 11 prime brokers. That's 11 data and reconciliation processes to work on consistently all day, every day. It was really expensive. It was part of the reason it was so expensive to run this stack. Blockchain was going to give us an opportunity to completely collapse that into something a lot more efficient. So I saw that day one. I got it. And in the afternoon, I've got Brian Armstrong and Fred extolling the virtues of Bitcoin and crypto and their exchange. Now, I was much slower on the uptake in crypto, but I did go and buy crypto that day. I bought Bitcoin at $200 in a Coinbase account. I'll spare you all the headlines. I didn't keep a hold of it because I thought it was a legend when I got a 200% return. But, you know, so we've, many of us have made that mistake. But that was more than 200% actually. But it was like a huge return. I think I sold it at 1700 thinking I was a total legend, but clearly not as much as I could have been. But that was the moment. And I came back to Dawn and said, we have to look at this. And she took me seriously. And we started looking at shops who were in the space with a view to potentially invest I appreciate Dawn listening to me and saying, yes, go look opportunities. That brought me into companies like Digital Asset, Symbiant that just went bust, and Paxos. Digital Asset and Paxos still very much players in this space. Got to know Blythe Masters and Uval and started to do due diligence and understand what those businesses were about. And it was too late after a few months. And that's how I ended up at R3. I saw that as the bet, the stepping stone from traditional finance to blockchain to eventually crypto. 
And I think I was right. I think it was the right call. And that's what got me into R3. And I had the great benefit. That's where my roller decks in this space just exploded. 2015, 16, 17, I was speaking on the nascent conference on the topic of enterprise blockchain, which is comical to think about now in retrospect, but like that's where we had to go through these movements. And I was becoming an evangelist for the technology and working with the biggest financial institutions in the world, the regulators, central banks, very early central bank digital currency projects came out of my lab. I was the CEO of the lab, got to work with David Rutter and his awesome team and really start, be at the beginning of financial services awakening to this new paradigm. And I've been a part of the furniture ever since. And I'm not an OG 20, 2008 vintage crypto guy, but I am an OG financial services blockchain and crypto guy, blockchain and digital asset guy. I think now I'm, I can lay claim to that. And I've seen it all evolve. And if we go back to the beginning of this story, I've now amassed by this point, buy side experience, sell side experience, data experience, analytics experience, academic experience, startup experience, big company experience, failure, successes. Really, at some point, and this is still at R3, I'm like, right, now I'm able to bring something to this new movement. And this is the movement that I missed in 99 when I was too late for Web 2. Web 3 is where I'm going to make a difference. And that was genuinely my thought process in December of 2015. Yeah. And there's no really better person to understand, I think, on many levels, the challenges, and let's, let's call a spade a spade, that some of the failures to build an architecture and a technology infrastructure as some of these leading both sell and buy side institutions that will ultimately scale, not just to the demands of the next generation of assets and market participants, but also as to what the architecture of the financial and monetary system looks like on a going forward basis. Now, I know these things are in very slow motion, right? And we're sort of taking a bet that we've got a good handle what that pace is. And who knows, we might be too early or not. And there are some very, very strong interests that are in some corners of the financial world trying to maintain their grip on those rents that the technology that, that we're involved in really threatens, right? Because disintermediation is very much at the heart of anything decentralized. And I think looking at your path, to your point, you are really well equipped, right, to understand where the pain points are. So now we're fast forwarding at a time where finally in a position of being able to convey and sell the concepts, but also the tangible services. And we'll talk about what those are within Galaxy and within your role. We're also at a time where you used the word evangelist at the time. We're sort of back to this because crypto and blockchain and the whole ecosystem have taken a big hit, a reputational hit for better or worse. And it doesn't apply to all participants, but unfortunately, because of the failings at some of the well-known institutions that we very well know of, places like FTX, 3AC, Luna, those big names, unfortunately carry a lot more weight than they should. And so you're back in a position where you need to go out and convince the world of the benefits of the technology and the infrastructure. But not only that, when I see it when I'm advising younger entrepreneurs and startups in the space, is trying to get them to define the future in a way that's different than just 
taking the playbook of the last few years and running with it again, because that is not going to work in terms of spurring adoption. Well, amen to that, brother. Really well said. Look, I, it's funny you picked that up today of all days, actually, because I was just at the FCA, the UK regulator earlier today, and kind of got into, I was sort of transported back a few years because there was a healthy debate. And I will, I appreciate the FCA for being coming to the table and having the debate. But we really got into the weeds of Bitcoin. <laughs> it was back to, it's been a while since I've had to sit there and debate the primitives and fundamentals and the value proposition of Bitcoin. I don't really tend to not have to do it. If a client's talking to us, they're already over that hump these days. And most big institutional players are one way or another, give or take, they're on the journey. So it was odd to be back there today. But you're right. That's not going to stop for a while when the prize is the wholesale replatforming of a new economic paradigm. And you're absolutely right. We can't be beholden to the construct that dates back quite far now into the 20th century. It's not a 1990s construct. I mean, what we're talking about here, financial services, is for the most part based on the technology choices that were available in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. A lot of the venues and how they were platformed with that technology over that time on the buy side, the sell side, and the infrastructure players, but also Friedman economics of the 70s that placed shareholder primacy at the top of the list. And that's how you get barbarians at the gate and all of that stuff that happened in the 80s. And I would argue that we're still laboring under an over-reliance on shareholder primacy when the term stakeholder primacy has been used more often, and I'm more in that. And look, I think right there, the disintermediation, the more equitable distribution of outcomes among an access and democratization of financial services is really at the core of what this crypto digital asset blockchain movement is about. And of course, it's so big now, there's so many people, it depends who you ask. Some people have different views, but I'm of that mind. I'm of the mind that this is the prize. Now, if that's the case, you're absolutely right. This is going to take forever. And of course, it took forever. You know, everything that's happening now, we probably thought was going to happen three or four years ago, back in 2015. <laughs> if we're being honest, it, we didn't think it would take this long. But that's kind of the way it always goes. Optimism is always there. You need the energy to get up every morning and keep fighting the good fight. Now I'm with the benefit of being older and the benefit of eight years in the space. I'm ready for it to take as long as it takes. It now becomes a very, and this comes back to a point you made, becomes a very rational discussion about how are you going to generate economic outcomes in a time frame that will match the capital commitment that you have, right? Like you're also right. Like there's a lot of money out there. So this chase for the unicorn is just not a good idea. It's just a popularized myth that is putting a lot of people into disillusion when they realize that this is so statistically unlikely that you're going to be involved in that. The much more realistic outcome is you, you're able to generate a return on money and sort of have your equity story get to a point where you can make an exit that's interesting and either allows you to go and build something else or in the very lucky situation allows you to have a comfortable life, but you're not going to, you're very unlikely to be a unicorn person. There's just so few people that do that. That's so important to sort of ingrain in entrepreneurs of today in this space. Um, but evangelism is not going to stop. 
I'm actually kind of excited to continue to be an evangelist. And this is a good segue into what I do as a day job. So Galaxy, um, it's a great honor to have gotten here. There was a, a detour in there between R3 and Galaxy where I built my own startup with some wonderful co-founders, truly learned the value of, of values and culture. That's where I really got that right. And we got that right. It failed. I can go into that, but it was a huge experience. It's still the best experience of my life, even though we failed. And then I was CEO of Six Digital Exchange in Switzerland, which is a whole other story in itself and a fascinating experience. But I'm very grateful, again, to have added those feathers to the cap just to have even more experience. But now I'm at Galaxy, and it's such the term is used about Galaxy a lot, which we don't like so much here for a few reasons. Goldman Sachs of crypto, but all right, I'll invoke it again. If you want to be seen as the best player, in the diversified institutional financial services space, then I think we're Galaxy is it, right? In what we do, we're a thousand trading house, we're an investment banking house, we're an asset management house, we're a Bitcoin miner, we're, we just bought GK8, so we're in the cold storage and technology solutions and infrastructure solutions kind of game now as well. We've got a lot going on here. We're, we've got good brand recognition. I'm not sure everybody knows what we do. So my job across Europe, Middle East and Africa, and I haven't stepped foot once in Africa since I took the job. So that tells you something like Europe and Middle East is big enough. I spend my time evangelizing all of those businesses all of the time with investors, with asset managers, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, regulators, central banks, traditional hedge funds, crypto native hedge funds, protocols, layer ones, layer twos. We're also a big venture capital house. So we talk to projects all the time. It's a really awesome place to kind of have purview across the entire space and how everything fits together. The old, the new, the DeFi, the CeFi, the TradFi, the new money, the old money, the young entrepreneurial spirit that comes out of the libertarian ideal of Bitcoin, the laggards, who are going to hold on to their intermediary positions for as long as they can. We speak to them all. We engage with them all. We evangelize with them all. So at the end of the day, I'm, you might say that Mike Novogratz, our founder and CEO, chief evangelizer for the firm, well, I'm chief evangelizer for the region. And hey, that ain't ever going to stop. Well, you shouldn't get into this space if you're not ready to do that, in my opinion. It's important to define and understand also the role that you're playing, because quite frankly, there aren't that many players left. And it's a testament to the strength of the balance sheet, the trading acumen, and the business acumen of the team to really hold it together through what was a difficult year last year. That probably puts you in a situation that is really two-sided right now. One is you're one of the last guys standing, and that really sets you up really nicely from a vantage point perspective, because you're really, you're obviously, you have a view on the industry and the space, and that's a very broad statement, right? But you're doing so in the way that hopefully you can monetize along the way as you assess what the next wave is going to look like. But it also brings me to the other facet, which is it's probably a difficult time right now, right? Without getting into the numbers, those of us who've worked on the south side and buy side, we know that the TradFi numbers really dwarf in terms of, if you look at desk PLs, size of balance sheets, 
just the asset class as a whole and the business opportunity, the wallet sizes, when you're dealing with trading counterparties are much smaller in the digital asset space. How do you manage that trade-off? On some level, like there is a survival aspect, not to say that you're on the ropes, but in the business I'm assuming is probably more constrained than it was in the run-up to the last bull market, whilst really preserving the optionality to see, okay, these three things are emerging and we're going to want to play a big role in this. It's definitely tough. I mean, that is where we're at. You're absolutely right. This is no one shooting the lights out in this space or very few are. So it's interesting. There's two things that come to mind here. One, I have the benefit of having been in a sinking ship at UBS in 2008. Was the, the tables were reversed. It could well have been Credit Suisse taking over UBS back then, and it didn't happen. But UBS was on its knees and needed a $38 billion bailout from the Swiss National Bank, which I was very, very close to. So I've been on the rough end, and it was really emotionally very, very difficult. I mean, I was also younger and had less experience, so I just thought the world, the bottom was falling out of the world, and it was genuinely a very difficult time for all of us back then. I've also been in the thick of last year with the benefit of age, and therefore being seeing people who were my age back in 2008, 15 years before that, and saying, hey guys, look, I've been through this before. It's all right. I can see in your eyes that you're freaking out. <laughs> But I'm not because I've been through this before. But I also had the benefit of being in the opposite end of the spectrum. Galaxy, because of all the things you highlighted, and primarily because, and this brings me to my second point, we are the marriage of old and new here. And that this is one of my biggest, more recent themes that I talk about in public is, because you get often get the questions, how does TradFi trust DeFi and all of this? And you still have these factions and people talk about TradFi, CFI, DeFi. And I would love us as an industry to move to just FI. Like, can we stop talking about these different elements? Sometimes it's a useful distinction, but for the most part, at any given moment, we got finance. Finance operates today with the tools that exist today. Tomorrow, it will evolve one incremental step further and it will continue to evolve ad infinitum. And it's evolving very, very quickly. And we're about to go through we're in the process of going through a replatforming of the industry on a time frame that can't quite be, I think, nobody can be certain of, but I think we're beyond the point of no return and the proof points are all there. Therefore, FI is only the best of what all of it has to bring any given point. Galaxy, I think, is positioned that way. We are traditional in the respects where it means it's important to be traditional and then by far the most important there is in risk management. How you manage risk, there's nothing like the experience of having been through multiple situations, cycles, markets, bear and bull, to know what to do. And I have great respect for my colleagues at the top of the house, Mike and Chris Ferraro and Jason, our head of trading, Aaron, our COO, for knowing how to navigate this stuff. And that's made us be very, very smart in where we've placed our capital. And our only black eye in 2022 was FTX. And that's the one that you can kind of get away with because everybody got a black eye who every one of us got a black eye on that one because it's just out and out fraud and it doesn't really count. We, were, we had no exposure to all the other things that you mentioned there, all the other the sort of big elements. So to your point, we survive stronger, mostly because we were smart there, not because we shot the lights out in terms of revenue at all, quite the opposite, but we're still alive. I think today that tide's shifting. It's slow. 
would love to get more clarity there's like the rest of the world on kind of the macro situation we're all on the sidelines to some extent trying to see what happens next but we're well positioned and we have 440 people we have more people now than we did at the beginning of 2022 because we made a couple of acquisitions at GK in Helios so we're back up to a, a certain level of fighting fitness I'd be lying if any every no one in Galaxy would say we're blessed with excess resources and that's right we shouldn't be we're still growing but we're supposed to bring the gray hairs maybe I'm in that camp now of experience and traditional finance and managing relationships with the exuberance and youthful energy of the 20 year olds who we have in our midst and we need in our midst both in the industry and in Galaxy to help build this new technology. You can't pretend to be effective in this world if you don't have that youthful energy, that very late 20th century, 21st century energy. And I think we've done a good job at having all of the above within our midst. We don't do everything right, but that's the positioning we have. And I do think we're well positioned for whatever and whenever this bounce starts to happen, whatever it looks like. That's the bet that we're making. But you're right, it's tough times. And it's back to your point about evangelism. Many more conversations we're having today that aren't obviously going to lead to a commercial outcome today or tomorrow than you want to, but enough. And I think the adoption cycle in, in the institutional space, and I'd feel like I'm reasonably well-placed to, with eight years in my background to say this now, I've, hopefully I've credentialized myself for the listeners. Like The adoption cycle is very, very real. It's not slowing down. It's speeding up to some extent, but it's just going to take time. Well, there are some major challenges pointing back to your experience comment and the fact that you have yourself and the rest of the team have gone through cycles, at least at the leadership level, navigated those because we fundamentally, unless something drastically changes on the monetary policy front in the US and in Europe to a certain extent, we have a looming de-equitization of the banking system that's going to cause ripples, right? And it's going to cause ripples as to what banks are being looked at and what functions in play, right? I mean, Circle, for example, is very vocal about taking the payment rails outside of the systemically vulnerable banking system, right? I mean, all those are very important questions that are prompted by the duration shock that we had last year. We've got regulatory uncertainty and probably a decoupling, right? That mirrors what was happening in the payment systems back in the 90s in the telecom world, where you had this dichotomy between Europe actually being ahead of the game and the US lagging because it hadn't wrapped its head around the challenges, right? What are your views as to the role that a firm like Galaxy can play, like in tangible terms, not just evangelizing, to help solve for some of these issues? It's a great point, actually. I hadn't thought, I remember the telco situation in Europe back when third generation, it was called back then, 3G was, the licenses were being auctioned in the UK. And it was, that was sort of where that came into my consciousness. You're right, Europe did steal a march on the US there, and it looks like it's doing it again in real time right now. Conversation I was having again just today with the FCA. Yes, everything you said is spot on. And we've seen as a functioning institutional player publicly listed we're publicly listed on the toronto stock exchange we're transparent balance sheet we're all the things you would want if you want to trade with someone we saw the reality of how things got disrupted over the last few months both in the traditional space and in our space 
you're losing Signature, you're losing Silvergate, losing SVB, watching UBS and Credit Suisse play out. Like this is all seismic stuff. So yeah, make no mistake, we're going on a path here that's not immediately obvious, but stuff has to change. This isn't the answer and Jeremy at Circle is spot on and Novo's been equally vocal and it strengthens the narrative for everything that we're doing. Yes. So what can we do? Well, it's funny, we dropped the term bridge. <laughs> we used to be called Galaxy Digital and we dropped the term digital because yeah, obviously with digital and everything's digital. We also dropped, we used to talk about being the bridge between institutional and crypto. And I think we were smart to drop that term too, because it's just one fi, right? We're just evolving the financial services paradigm, the infrastructure, the substrate every day, every week that we do work. The role that we can play is we're kind of in both. We do trade traditional assets. We do trade crypto assets. We're probably the biggest balance sheet in crypto derivatives. I think it's fair to say it's our belief that for the crypto markets in general to evolve institutionally and find to get the net new money, trillions of new money into this space that's going to be needed, we're going to need to see the growth of the derivatives market because that's a very clear playbook that we've seen with every asset class. And remember, I saw this with credit derivatives. That was where we really saw a whole expansion of what you could do in credit, in debt, which is as old as banks that are, the first Italian banks. So I've seen this play out and we need to do that again. And so things like A, promoting the use of crypto derivatives with the institutional players, working with big wealth management players who until now have felt that they couldn't engage with private companies because they're too opaque and it won't satisfy the compliance and regulatory hurdles within their institutions. We're talking about the biggest financial institutions in the world, the biggest wealth management players in the world. They want to trade. They want to get involved with someone that they can trust and that speaks their language. That's us. We speak the language of ISDAs. We speak the language of onboarding documentation. We're not phased by that. But we also speak the language of DeFi. We also deploy capital into the DeFi landscape. We also trade on Deribit. We also trade in the corners of the DeFi market that are most nascent. We speak the language of both sides. So I don't want to promote the difference of the sides. I think we're all supposed to get around a table, but that's our job to help everybody get around the table. And we're supposed to go to the FCA today and help explain why the British public, retail public, should have access to Bitcoin in a regulated manner, why that's good for the public as an option. So that's the role we play. The way I describe it is we're institutionally top down. Like, yes, we'll trade with crypto native funds and high net worth. That's a lot of volume coming from those players. But we're supposed to work with the biggest, most prestigious, most traditional, most important pools of capital in the world and help them and the biggest decision makers and help them to really come on this journey. And this takes me back to my roots in 2015. It take, And I'll still be talking about this in a decade. I'm absolutely certain of it. But that's really the role we play. And it's not just in trading. It's asset management. My friend and colleague, Steve Kurtz, runs that unit. It's investment banking. What does that look like? What does capital raising in M&A look like? It's tokenization, which is alluding to earlier. Such a slow burn. When are we going to see digital securities really hit? I could write a thesis on that myself. 
but we've got to keep going. We've got to get people over the line. We need to have digital securities issued. We need venues. We need our regulation to evolve. And therein lies the excitement in my day job, which is at any given moment, I'm talking about something in all of that. That's a lot of things to do, but that's Galaxy right there. That's the role we're supposed to play. And that's important because you're sort of straddling a wide and diverse set of stakeholders and need to be able to speak. You know, actually, one of the big value points here is the ability to interact and to speak the different languages, to act a translator, really, between those different worlds. And I strongly believe personally, right? And forget about, I love your FI as opposed to CFI, DeFi. It's very important, right? Because this is needed, right? If everyone's just sitting in their own camp, nothing's going to get resolved and we will not make any progress. I was reviewing a deck recently for a pivot on a startup and it had the words helping crypto adjacent participants and markets. And I said, take that off. Because by using crypto adjacent, you're actually implying that crypto is not a part of it, right? And so what we want is we don't even want to talk about this. We want to talk about FI, to your point. We want to talk about, okay, how are you going to solve real problems? Forget what's going on in the back end. That's our expertise. We understand that we can build the future. Let's figure out what the problems are and what are the best ways to solve them, as opposed to creating these different factions and terminologies and acronyms and camps. And by the way, I'm completely agnostic and neutral as an investor, as an advisor, as an entrepreneur, but even within the realm of what we're discussing, there are factions and are widely different opinions as to what that means for the future. Like the Bitcoin community is very much operating in its own world and has a very strong philosophy with respect to a variety of different things, be it technology, being censorship resistance, being establishing an alternative monetary system. People like Jeremy at Circle are pragmatists. They're trying to engineer the future of banking, of payment rails, right? And so bring all this together requires that you really have your hands in many, many different aspects of the industry. And I do believe that if a firm like a Galaxy and a few others that are still standing because they had experience, best risk management systems, and quite frankly, just business acumen at the leadership level, if that had been lost in the crisis of last year, the crypto crisis, I think we would have been worse off for it personally. And it's not just because you're on the podcast today. I truly believe it. There is a very important role that needs to be played. Tim, you know, I know we could, and certainly I'd love to have you back because I think I'd love to get more technical and talk about some specific things that you're looking at. I know your firm straddles, again, the venture side, on the trading side, I'd love to hear how the mining industry has changed. So maybe we'll have you come back and chat some more. But it's been wonderful having you. I think people will learn a lot from your experience and your evolution as a professional, as a person, and what led you to be in the seat that you're in. So thank you for, again, being the evangelist that you are and really spearheading those initiatives within the industry. It's been a pleasure having you today. Maxime, it's also a pleasure. I'd love to come back. You're absolutely right. There's a bunch of stuff we could have talked about then, but we haven't. So love to come back and talk about it. And let's not forget, and I think that's a note I'd love to leave on, that why are we doing all this? It's to make a faster, better, cheaper system for us all. 
governments, corporations, and individuals to live our lives. That's what's at stake here. It's that black and white. So let's go fight the good fight and evangelize all day long. Thanks, Maxime. Amen. Thank you, Tim. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.